Quaker podcast where liberty is our mission. Today is Wednesday, July 16th, 2014. This is podcast number 376, and my name is Ben Stone. You may not hear this on Wednesday, July 16th. I uh, just released a podcast today, so it'll probably be a couple days until this one gets released. I don't want to put them right on top of each other. Plus, I still have some recordings from Porkfest 2014 to uh, to release as well. So I'm going to try to meter these out as best as I can. And uh, But with me today on the phone is Stefan Kinsella. Stefan, welcome back to Bad Quaker Podcast. It's really great thanks. to talk to you again. Thanks very much, Mr. Bad. <laughs> or can I just call you Bad? <laughs> We're on a first name <laughs> basis, sure. Okay. Good so, to be here. Um, so one of the things I wanted to just hit you right off with this. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was Tesla Motors. Um, there earlier in the year, there was an announcement and there was kind of several people like yourself and a couple other people, Jeffrey, I think, uh, talked about it, but several people mentioned that this is a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, what struck me though, is that I've watched Tesla motors now for well over a year and they have, it seems to me like they were a constant target of the media and of the government, uh, constantly trying to paint them in a bad light, constantly trying to make them out to be, you know, some kind of evil monsters of business or whatever. And I kept thinking, you know, why is this company getting singled out like this? And then they came out earlier this year with the announcement that they were essentially going open source with everything. And I thought, oh, that's why the media hates them. And that's why the government hates them. We've got some, uh, some enlightened people in this company. But what's what's your thoughts on on what happened with Tesla? Well, that's interesting. Um, um, I, I've been thinking about it too. Um, there may be a lot of um, implications that we can't fully see yet, and there's a lot of ways to approach this. Um, I hadn't thought about that angle. Um, my first reaction to their announcement was negative because um, I, I'm probably because I was letting perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, I'm I'm such a radical abolitionist of IP, mm-hmm. and this this guy. Um, simply announced this policy in a blog post. So I'm thinking, like a lawyer, well, this isn't legally enforceable. You know, he can he can get the credit for acting like he's going to be not litigious, but if he changes his mind, he can do it anyway. And some of his wording wasn't perfect. And but the more I thought about it, um, I I like it. I think it's pretty good, and we should we should praise them for what they've done. And uh, it probably will have a good effect. Um, as for the reason they're being attacked and criticized. I'm not sure. I mean, libertarians sometimes talk about them being on the government dole because of all the subsidies to um, electric car research and all that. Um, I don't know. You can't really blame people for taking advantage of the the, the way the system's set up, you know. 
Right. We all we all drive on roads that are essentially right. uh, you know right. subsidized and so forth. But uh, you know there was something recent that was similar. Uh, I, I blogged I blogged about it. The IRS um, has announced that um, some of these uh, open source software companies um, now aren't going to qualify for nonprofit status, and the reason is because they are they have the open source software license, which means they're not enforcing copyright, which means the code they generate could be used by some commercial for profit company down the road. And that that jeopardizes the nonprofit status of the nonprofit company itself. So, in other words, the federal government is using its tax law, its tax system, to 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 literally punish companies that don't use the copyright system the federal government's trying to get us to use. So, <laughs> there could be something to that. If you don't want to use the the system the government is trying to force you to use, it's for your benefit. They will find a way to punish you, and so maybe Tesla is on the receiving end of something like that in the patent sphere because of their because of this uh, this new policy. I don't know. Um, so let me let me get this straight. Uh, see if I get this straightened out in my mind. Let's say you've got Honest Joe's Widget Company, and he decides not to use the patent system. And he decides to go open source with everything, but he's not a profit company. He's a non for he's a for he's a not for profit company, and he he follows all the other rules, makes his widgets, and uh, does exactly what he's doing. But then the government is saying because somebody might a different company, you know, Larry's widget company, might uh, sort of be a free rider on his technology and make money off of it somehow, Joe. Is going to be penalized for what yes. Larry might do later. Yep, this is just a few days ago. The IRS uh, uh, announced this ruling, so it's going to be harder for open source. Now, that was the case of copyright, not patent. Right. Um, but uh, so, I mean, what they're saying basically is, let's say you're a nonprofit company and you generate um, software, and you want to do the open source model, which is very prevalent now. Uh, if you have an open source model, I guess what the IRS wants you to do is slap a copyright notice on it and threaten to sue people and not let people use it in an open way. You have to force them to come to you for a license and negotiate and threaten them with a lawsuit if they don't pay it. You have to act like Hollywood or the or the music industry, which are profit industries, so it makes no sense. So you have a nonprofit trying to generate code that's good for the the economy and the world. And open it up there for free so that it will be developed and refined and improved and shared. Uh, and now you're penalized for that because you're not taking advantage of the copyright system. If we, imagine if we didn't have a copyright system at all, then the IRS would have no argument. Yeah. Because you wouldn't be doing anything wrong. You wouldn't have a copyright on your code. No one would. But you wouldn't be like giving a gift to people uh, that's an exceptional thing. It would just be the way it would have to be. So here we have copyright law being used by the state. To justify taxing people more, or conversely, you could say they're using the punishment of the tax system to force people to use copyright law in a coercive way. It's 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 totally absurd, obscene, and insane. You know, sometimes I I and I know this is not true, but sometimes my mind wanders and I think silly things, and sometimes I think, you know, it's almost like 
the the tyrants that are in charge of these weird policies and these different layers of government that when they come up with things like that, it's almost like they're secret anarchists going, what can we come up with that's so crazy that it's going to be obvious that government is nothing but tyranny? And then they implement some goofy thing like this. Like, I mean, you could pick on anything, Obama's uh, medical thing that he's pushing through through the IRS or, you know, the way that they're mm-hmm. handling the, mm-hmm. the immigration situation. You look at that and you think it's almost like there's an intelligence behind all this saying, let's make this thing as stupid as possible until people figure it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but I know that it's just the opposite. It's just it's the tendency of tyranny to end up with unbelievably ridiculous policies. It, it, it's not that they, you know, it's not that they particularly want to look dumb. It's just that they're doing something that's horribly aggressive and the end result of it has to be bad. Yeah, you and I can, can think and see that they're heading for a cliff. Yeah. And surely they're going to turn back at some point or they have some grand, <laughs> uh, same thing with a federal deficit and, you know, with everything, you know, but people are short-sighted. Democracy creates short-sighted so-called leaders, right? Mm-hmm. They have a um, – so I, I think it's inevitable that stupid decisions will be made. I mean take the copyright and patent system, which it, it keeps getting ratcheted up in terms of scope and term length and protective efforts um, at the behest of the special interest, you know, the lobbyists. Mm-hmm. And yet there's an increasing backlash by a- average people when they see the effects of these things like the same the way that SOPA was killed, and of course they're going to try to reintroduce SOPA-like protections yet again mm-hmm. soon. Um, they're in the process of doing it right now. Um, so in the patent system, you have an increasing number of people going, what the hell is going on? I'm just trying to make a product, and then I find out that I'm stopped. Uh, there's patent trolls that are extracting money. You have Apple and Samsung and Motorola and Google and all these companies having uh, smartphone battles and getting $400 million uh, awards against each other. It's you know, enriching the lawyers. It's impoverishing the consumer. It's slowing down innovation and, and entrenching these cartelized sort of interests. Uh, I think at, there's, a, there's a recent a tr- patent troll that won a, uh, a patent lawsuit against Apple, uh, and this is a patent troll. So you can't really sue them back like they can sue Samsung back because mm-hmm. they're competitors. Um, a troll is a so-called non-practicing entity. So the, the danger of the troll is you can't countersue them because they're not practicing anything that you could use your patents against them for defensively. On the other hand, the troll usually doesn't want to shut you down. They just want to uh, uh, suck a little. Bl- they want to taste. You know, they yeah. want to suck a little blood out of, of a going business. Anyway, they won this suit against uh, Apple, and it looks like um, they're probably going to be entitled to one percent of Apple's iPhone and iOS device sale revenues probably for the next ten years. Which is like something like four hundred million a year. So we're wow. talking four four billion, five billion dollars, maybe more if the patents last longer. And it's just a pure redistribution of wealth. And you can't feel too sorry for Apple, uh, but on the other hand, they're playing the system. They're part of the game. But you have an increasing resort by companies, small companies, medium sized companies, tech companies, to these systems where they try to pool their patents with each other. In a defensive way, there's mm-hmm. a there's a there's an increasing pro- proliferation of these uh, of these networks. So what you have is you have companies getting together and they're saying, "We're all in the same industry. All we want to do is make our products and compete on the free market, and we just don't want to be sued out of existence. So let's all agree to a detente. Let's all let's all sign this agreement saying 
none of us will ever sue each other. <laughs> we're just going to compete with each other on the market, and we're going to pool all of our patents together, and if one of us really needs the patent another company has to defend themselves from a patent from, from, from some patent competitor, um, you can use that patent. So you have all this energy, resources, waste, time, and effort being spent accumulating patents and then collaborating with others simply to get a shield from the patent system itself. And it just doesn't occur to these people or to the policymakers or to the average person. You know what would be a simpler way to avoid this threat? <laughs> get rid of the patent system in the first place. I, they just they, they just can't take that final leap. I, I, it frustrates me to no end when I hear these quasi-libertarian, tech-libertarian, moderate people, and they talk about the patent system is broken or hmm. it's being abused or the copyright system – um, 120 years of term is just too long. It's not fulfilling the original purposes of the copyright statute. And I want to say, you know, you're you're coming up to the edge of the pond, but you just won't drink. You know, it's like you're you're halfway there. Yeah. You're you're identifying the consequence that's bad, but you just can't have a fundamental strike at the root principled. They just can't rip the bandaid off. You know, they just I don't know why people can't just say. Wait a second. Maybe the copyright and patent system were a big freaking mistake. I don't know. Why can't they do that? It's really weird. It's kind of like it's it's kind of like if you imagine a donut shop owner in you know in like in in New York City who is accustomed to dealing with a mafia guy uh, who comes around and wants five percent of his business every single week. And uh, so he just gives the mafia guy 5% of the business week after week after week after week, and he just assumes that that's part of business. And if somebody comes to him and says, look, all you got to do is testify against the mafia guy, and you know we'll get him out of your hair. We'll arrest him and haul him away and, and charge him with crimes, and, and he'll be out of your hair. And the guy says, but, but if I did that, who would I give the 5% to? Exactly. Yeah, I, I mean it's that, that. it's that kind of victim mentality where they just say – well, uh, we have to have this system because it's here. And and you think, how in the world can you not break your mind out of these chains and just see that, you know, a system based on aggression is uh, is not a legitimate system? It, it's just theft. Well, and I think it's also um, – it's funny uh, the compartmentalization people will engage in because – you know, we live in a modern world. We live in a world where the free market is well known and fairly prevalent, and there's a, a, a dim understanding on the part of most people that capitalism, to some degree, free markets, private property rights, the business, you know, business competition, it generates good things. Mm -hmm. They they kind of know that. They they know that. Um, and and yet they will say, in, in like a Republican, you know, alleged free market supporter, chamber of commerce type guy, uh, who's allegedly in support of say competition. Because they use this all the time in their arguments against welfare and public schools or whatever. So right. they kind of – they understand this. But then they'll say something like, well, if there's no patents and I come up with a new product, then people can compete with me. <laughs> 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 and and how, am I, how am I supposed to make a profit if people can compete with me? They, I mean this is what they literally say. And you say – you realize that what you're saying is you don't want competition to be too hard. And you want the government to make sure that you can make a profit. This is what you're saying. This is not the free market. This is not competition. 
this is anti-competitive by its nature, and they just they're explicitly admitting it. They're 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 against competition, even though at other walks and at other times they say they're for competition. It's it's so, funny. It's cognitive dissonance or something. It's funny because a lot of these same Republican types, pro-market types, or whatever, they can see the silliness with their children when. You know, the school says, okay, we're going to have a soccer game, but we're not going to keep score. And so the kids get out there and they, you know, they play a soccer game and there's no score and there's no winners and there's no losers. And they can see the absurdity of even, why are you even playing then? Right. Um, But yet they can't take that same logic and apply it into a, a different thing. That is essentially the same situation. If, right. You know, if business cannot compete, then business cannot improve. Life right. cannot improve. We can't right. get better and, you know, we can't crawl out of caves and down from trees and actually accomplish things in life. We're without competition. I mean, you know, competition is so, um, basic to, to, to life on earth from every level, from the smallest amoeba. Right up to, you know, whales, uh, well, natural, sele- natural selection itself is competition, right? Yeah, exactly. And to go counter to that seems to me to be almost anti-human species. It's, it's almost like, um, you know, an attempt to go against nature, like the, uh, maybe the, uh, I don't know, um, I'm trying to think. Okay, so I'll use the the uh, the whale eating krill. So instead, he he decides no, he wants to eat ham sandwiches. But right. how many ham sandwiches is he going to get in the middle of the ocean? So he ends up right. starving to death because he's decided yeah. to go against his nature. Well, or just or just the the various communist experience. You know, like was it Robert Owen? The, you know, they, they try these com- so called voluntary communist experiments that just don't work because there's incentive effects. There's the way there, there's a variety of so, you know, societal, sociological, psychological reasons why it just won't – that kind of system won't work outside of a small family unit or something. Right. Um, but by the way, to, to slightly get on a tangent on uh, something you mentioned uh, and, uh, about the, the, uh, the these uh, soccer games and things where they don't keep score, let me give a slight defense um, of an aspect of that. And this is not really a libertarian topic, but um, – <laughs> um, and also in – in, in, in school, um, so there's something called the Fun Fair Play Soccer League, um, which is a little bit like what you're talking about. Um, now, I would agree with you that if you don't have points and you're not competing, it's just not a game anymore. You need to do that. Right. Um, um, and sometimes the, the the groups that that try to emphasize other things and, and do it a little bit different than than normal uh, are criticized. Uh, like by saying, oh, well, you don't, you don't have points and all that. That's not true. They, they do. But what they do is they, they ban the parents that yell at the kids and like get too into it. But, and they do give everyone a turn. Like for six year olds, the idea is that they need to get some experience. And so it's not all about competition. Sorry. Um, so, um, uh, the idea is you have all these parents that like live there's like their, 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 their former jocks that didn't make it or something, and they want to live vicariously through their kids. Yeah. And so just for one example, what, what this fun, fair play soccer thing forbids, and my kid's never done it, but, uh, I've, I've looked into it. Um, you can't, you can't yell at the kids like, kick it, kick it, kick it. I mean, if the kid's running down the field, 
They know they have to kick the damn ball. <laughs> they don't need parents berating them. Kick it, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so I do like I do like that aspect of, for very young children that everyone gets a turn because they get experience and you and everyone else learns to deal with. Sometimes there's an inferior players that you have to work around or deal with. They're part of your the hand that's dealt. And in education, um, my kid's a Montessori student, and they don't have this kind of quantitative ranking grading system, but it's not out of this modern egalitarian sort of impulse or this relativist impulse to not judge kids and all this. Um, like I would agree that you shouldn't give everyone a gold star for their report or give everyone a trophy for participating or whatever because then it becomes meaningless, right? Right, right. I would agree with that. But so like the reason Montessori doesn't do grading is because they have – Almost an intuitive, like Misesian dualist understanding of human nature. They realize that some things are not quantitative, mm-hmm. right? And um, uh, that's one reason why um, the Montessori system puts a kid in a class for three years. So you're like in lower elementary, which is like first, second, and third grade for three years, and you have the same teacher, just one teacher. So that teacher gets to know that child very well. Mm. And the reports are meetings with the parents where the teacher, who knows the kid almost as well as the parents do, explains what's going on in verbal terms. You see what I mean? It's not quantitative usually. Right. It's in verbal terms. So it's, it's, it's actually – there's a reason for it. It's a little bit of a tangent I'm getting off on here, but um, I sometimes sympathize with these, these approaches and um, think that they're strawmanned a little bit and exaggerated by the kind of conservative uh, – tiger mom mentality you know um but anyway just a little tangent there sorry okay well no no that was good um plus it's a little bit of an insight in as to how montessori schools work too the montessori schools are um um i don't think it's a perfect system i don't think anything is a perfect system um um, but what I like about it is it's, it's been around for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So they've carefully developed things and they do it empirically observing children and figuring out what methods work, but there's a system there. And what, what I've told other Montessori teachers and administrators when we have meetings about policies and changes and things like that is what I admire about them is they have a re- they have a reason for almost everything they do, a good solid reason. Um, uh, I don't always agree with them, but at least there's a reason. Like we do it this way because the child sees this and the child needs this or whatever. Um, and I, there's a lot of concrete examples, and I, I just find the whole thing fascinating. So, for example, they don't have they don't have desks, they don't have a grid of things where a teacher you know broadcasts a message and they have to listen listen for an hour. It's more of an independent thing. To my mind, Montessori is like the best of homeschooling and unschooling with a systematic foundation and the right environment. Well, um, pretty much anything that you can get your kids into that's not the Prussian model, which is essentially, you know, what modern uh, American public schools are, the Prussian model. Right. Uh, pretty much anything that you can do to get your kid out of that is going to almost be an improvement no matter how good or bad it might be. Yeah, but my, but if you, if you uh, talk to a regular uh, conventional school teacher, public or even private, that uses this so, so-called Prussian model and you say – why are the children in a grid of desks, you know, laid mm-hmm. out in the room yeah. and the, the, the courses are arranged by specialist teachers just lecturing for 45 minutes? Why do you do it that way? They, they usually don't have an answer. They have no idea. They're, they're just doing it because they've been told that's how you do it. Right. 
But if you ask any Montessori teacher that's a, a professionally trained Montessori teacher, um, why is your classroom arranged this way? Why do you use sandpaper, the sandpaper alphabet? Why do you teach cursive before print? Why do you teach writing before reading? Um, they will have an answer. They can explain to you why they do that. There's a good, solid basis for, for the reasoning, and it's always from the focus of the child. And I think that's uh, that's key. You can't have – I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of a Montessori cultist zealot <laughs> at this point, to be honest, and so I kind of bore people. But I tell you, one thing that annoys me is when I hear um, people that don't understand Montessori, they'll say uh, – They'll say, well, it's probably good for some children, but not for every child. And I actually don't agree with that. I think that I'm not saying it's the best system in the world or perfect, but mm -hmm. I think it's basically sound and it was developed for basically half retarded children. Hmm. And now it's being used for, you know, uh, normal children. Um, uh, I, I think saying it's like saying nutrition is good for some kids, but some kids just need to eat a lot of nachos. <laughs> I mean, that makes no sense to me. Or say like saying, well, having a calm, loving approach to child rearing is good for some children, but some children just need to get the crap beat out of them. <laughs> I, I mean, it's like, what are you talking about? Health is good. You know, understanding is good. Uh, talking to the child from their perspective is good. Mm -hmm. So I don't actually agree with that uh, with that kind of bizarre criticism and the other one that drives me nuts is people which is a human tendency they like to criticize things they don't know much about right, right and I, right. I see this on ip all the time people are always having vociferous opinions about things they really are confused about um so i will hear people will say well montessori is good but it's not structured enough it's like everyone can do what they want so they're they're imagining <laughs> some kind of unschooled Lord of the Flies environment. Mm -hmm. And then other people will say, well, I like Montessori, but it's way too structured. They have to do X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, which one is it? You know, Jesus. I guess we libertarians get that too, right? We, 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 uh, yeah, we're, we're too, we're too rigid and we're too intolerant and yet we're too tolerant or I don't know. I just recently saw uh, an episode. Well, I didn't watch the whole episode, but I saw a segment of, um, the, uh, oh, the guy's name, uh, jumps out of my head for a moment. Um, anyway, uh, it was on, it's a, he's a real popular kind of a leftist TV guy who kind of gave Ron Paul, uh, a decent microphone a few times back during the, uh, uh John Stewart. Okay. I was stalling. <laughs> so right, I, right. I was watching this segment of John Stewart where he had this, uh, expert, this libertarian expert on to talk about, uh, one of the Koch brothers. And I can't remember which is which they're all pretty much the same to me. Um, anyway, and he was talking about how this one Koch brother was most definitely uh, an anarcho-capitalist, and he was laying out his argument as to why the guy was an anarcho-capitalist. And, of course, it was clear from his discussion that he didn't have any clue what an anarcho-capitalist was. And he what, didn't... Stuart was arguing that one of the Koch brothers is, is an anarchist, like a secret anarchist? Well, uh, his, his expert that had done oh, a biography uh, Got it. was making that. And so the expert was saying, you know, of course he's an anarchist and, of course, he, he wants to crush all government. And, and the reasoning why is because he's so super rich – you know, because if you're and this is the argument they were making, if you're so super rich, then you don't want there to be a government because you don't want people to tell you what to do because you're so super rich. And then I was also uh, looking at a, a it's like the polar opposite of John Stewart. I was looking at some minor libertarians website where 
somebody had come on there and was attacking uh, the idea of ANCAP, and they were arguing it back and forth whether there should be minimalist government or or some for, you know no government or whatever. And the person uh, attacking uh, the ANCAP position said. Well, I've never known of anybody who held the ANCAP position who had an, a high school education. And they, they claim that basically all ANCAPs are, you know, living in their mother's basement broke and, and half stupid. And, yeah, know, it's, just, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just an ad hominem, basically. Yeah. And it, and it struck me odd that we have these two opposite images, neither of which is even remotely accurate, that only... You know, the only people who would want there to be no government is the ultra rich or the only people that would want there to be no government sit around and chew on their own toes for nutrition because they're so dumb. And, you know, and these two things can't exist in the same realm. The, you know, the two arguments are both so extreme and silly. And yet we face that kind of stuff all the time from these people. I, I guess I find that. Most normal people, you know, people that just live their lives, they're decent neighbors, they have regular jobs. They're, most people are not really political, or they don't fancy themselves to be political intellectuals, right? They don't, they don't come up with these things. I mean, I find I have more uh, luck and uh, a, a groove, sort of, with you know, just your, your anyone, a regular person, like uh, a, a neighbor. I have having a, 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 a wine cocktail with or something. Maybe she's a maybe she's a Democrat, maybe she's a Republican, but they know you're a person. They know you're smart. They know you're well-meaning, and everyone respects certain things. And if you word things in a certain way, mm-hmm. they usually agree with you because they're 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 decent, well-meaning people. So if you like, if they say something pro-Obama, and you point out, well, you know, he's done A, B, and C, which George Bush has done, which. Your side criticizes. They usually kind of go, "Well, you're right," but they can't take the next step. But they they don't really deny that. Mm-hmm. And Republicans are the same, you know. If, if, if they have a, they're they're pro Bush and they throw Obama being a communist, and you point out that you do realize Bush and Obama are almost indistinguishable in areas A, B, C, D, and E. They kind of go, "Yeah, you're kind of right," but they just can't take the next step. Yeah. Um. But 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 they're 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 honest because they're not really tendentious. They're they just are stuck in their left right mentality or something. But you have these other people that are more uh, intellectual opposites, and I think they are. I think they're by and large just shills. I mm. think they're trying to push some kind of socialistic agenda of some type. Yeah. And so they see that libertarianism is not. A unknown unknown word anymore. It's not an unknown phenomena. We I'm not saying we're rising or we're going to dominate, but it's not the minority position it was 20 years ago. I don't think. I think it's more of a well known third uh, perspective. A lot of people gravitate towards. They know this, and I think they're they're trying to tear it down. So they engage in ad hominem and smears and straw man. Arguments, uh, I think, largely on purpose or out of cavalier disregard for honesty and the truth. I agree. I think uh, I think the ones actually doing those attacks are um, are dishonest, and uh, I have a hard time. You know, I, I mean, I'm stuck either thinking, well, they're either a complete moron or they're not being fully honest with their position. And you know, I'm sure there are some who are just dumb. But uh, but some of these people making these arguments are not stupid people. You can tell from other things that they've said or other things that they've written or whatever 
that they're not stupid. So that leaves you with the conclusion that they're just dishonest, that they're that they don't want to admit that they are indeed a socialist and that they do want to dominate people and they do want to use yes. aggression as the the way to make people behave the way they want them to behave. Well, what I think it is, I think I wouldn't say they're dishonest. I would say they are dishonest, but I think they're not dishonesty to them is just a means to an end they're willing to be dishonest to advance their cause right mm-hmm. right but their cause is not is not ours um look i had um i had a, a regular person this morning ask me who do libertarians hate more the left or the right <laughs> and i said well it depends on who you ask right i mean of course um and i said but but i my per me Kinsella, i can't Deny that I really, really hate the left, and part of the reason is I do think the the right is almost as bad or even worse in some ways, which is one reason, by the way, that I reject this entire left libertarian, right libertarian, thick, thin, all this crap. Mm-hmm. I look, I, I, I am proud and happy to be a libertarian. I'm a libertarian for a reason, and I've rejected the left right spectrum a long time ago. Yeah, but not only do I reject the left. And the right, I reject the idea that the left and right are that different. I mean, you know, they're just different flavors of socialism, from my perspective. Yeah, but it, what really ar- irritates argue me about which the, which hand holds the whip that beats you? Yeah, of course. And but what really <laughs> irritates me about the left is this smug, condescending superiority that they adopt mm-hmm. um, when they're actually fascists and totalitarians. And you know, it's it's. It's like they're not really in favor of free speech, yet they they carry the banner of free speech. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're not in favor of of liberty at all. I mean, they they're it, it mystifies me why some even libertarians are bamboozled by this. They'll say, well, the, the left is better on war <laughs> and 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 drugs and immigration, and I'm like, well. World War One and two and the Vietnam War were done under. Democrat administrations in the U.S. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't hear liberals calling for decriminalization of all drugs. Right. Okay. You could say that the one or two states that have slightly liberalized marijuana have a, a Democrat leaning population, but the, the leftists are not in favor of drug legalization. No. If they were, I would give them credit. They're as bad a nanny staters as the right are. Just to, well. You know. Yeah, they're, they're, they are they they are not out there advocating for elimination of drug laws, and right. they are not also saying that we should open the borders. Yeah, and so why they get credit for being better on the drug war or immigration uh, than 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 the right is mystifying to me. They're all horrible on these issues. Uh, so that it, drive, it, drives me crazy. It amazes me the same direction when gun rights people try to claim that the right wing or that the Republicans are better in gun rights when, in fact, it's people like, I mean, it's been well documented. People like Ronald Reagan were one of the forefront people in, in you know, banning guns in California back in the 60s. And the, the NRA is a very right wing Republican type organization. And they've been, you know, hand in hand with the government in, in uh, uh, trying to tie down the ability of people to defend themselves. And, and they actually, their business model for the NRA and other organizations like that requires that there be this constant enemy at the gates telling us that, oh, they're going to take your gun rights away unless you give us donations so that we can buy more lobbyists right. in the government. And nobody on the right seems to realize that they are being fiddled 
that they are just nothing but, you know, a, a tool that's being fiddled by the right. And the right is not here to protect your gun rights. The, not, the right is not here to protect any of those rights that you perceive that the right is doing any more than the left is here, you know, trying to get drugs uh, decriminalized or trying to get it, – it's, it's all a con because they're all socialists. I, I think it's a con, and I think there's a, there's basically a money making aspect of this. This is part of the I'm gonna call it think tank, but it's part of this you know this this world where there's all these groups that they they they, they try to get funding because they're the standard bearer for your cause. And I could be wrong about this, and I'm open to persuasion. My impression is that the rank and file typical so-called conservative citizen in America, you know I mean person who just identifies as a conservative but they go about their business mm-hmm. they i think that their gun position is actually pretty quasi libertarian they they have an instinctive understanding that there is a right to own guns and mm-hmm. that's why they are appeal that it appeals to them the nra of course is a political organization they capitulate they compromise um but i think that the the basic right position on guns is basically sound. It's pushing in the right direction, and there, there's at least a, a, a significant portion of those people that want pretty much open gun rights. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I, I literally do not hear Democrat or leftist groups calling for the abolition of the drug war. They just don't say that ever. Mm-hmm. They don't say we should have open borders. Um, and so – I just don't understand why they get credit for being better on immigration and the drug war, yeah. for example, than than the right. They're they're just as bad because they want to tweak it at the edges. It's like a, a copyright or a patent reformer. They want to, you know, reform and slightly improve the system, but they don't want to get rid of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are some. My impression is there's a significant number of conservatives who. Uh, Really, or strongly, at least in America, strongly for gun rights. Um, so I think there's a difference. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't place the pro-gun conservatives on the same um, level as the hypocritical, alleged pro-free speech, pro-civil liberties um, leftists. Um, I would say that the ACLU and those types are sometimes. Actually, they are heroic when it comes to First Amendment type rights, but it's a pretty narrow type of thing to find them really being consistent, and they don't go too far, right? They they ignore the Second Amendment, for mm. example. They claim to be for the Bill of Rights, but they ignore the Second Amendment. I think Nadine Strossen – wasn't there something a few years ago, like 10 years ago, Nadine Strossen was getting wooed by or impressed by libertarians because we're, we're her allies in some ways. And she kind of admitted that we might need to revisit the Second Amendment issue. But, of course, <laughs> they they tabled it for the next 50 years, I guess, you know, so. Yeah. Now, I, I would be uh, doing a short uh, shortcoming for my audience if I didn't uh, take you in the in the direction that I'm that I really want to ask you about also. Um, whenever you and I are talking, I, I always want, to, whether I accomplish this or not, I always want to take the conversation in the direction of justice and retaliation because you're one of the few voices out there that I read on this topic and, and it's like, it's like you have, you're putting to words my thoughts, uh, really, really close to the way I feel them. 
and maybe a little bit different because I, I don't know if I, I really emphasize a lot on what is human nature and that whatever human, true human nature is, is probably correct. Um, and I default to that setting and then, and then work out from there. And I don't think that's necessarily your methodology, but you've written about, uh, retaliation. I want to read a, a real quick thing here that you wrote. It says, it is retaliation, the right to respond with proportionate force against the aggressor, that is the primary right the victim has under libertarian justice. Restitution is then seen not as some utopian, unattainable goal of making the victim whole, which is impossible, but simply the random, oh, I'm sorry, but simply the ransom paid by the aggressor pursuant to negotiation backed by the victim's threat of imposing the rightful amount of responsive force that he is entitled to impose. And I think that's really just, first off, I hate to say it, but it's written by a lawyer, and it's so it's very concise in what you're saying, and I, and I strongly appreciate that because so many people use the English language in such a gross way that, it, that the English language means almost nothing. So I appreciate when I when I read a well written statement like that, but essentially, uh, you know, the thing that strikes me is that that there is nothing wrong with retaliation, and that retaliation is a natural part of justice. And when retaliation is uh, either either quenched, either thrown out of the the uh, the realm of possibility, disallowed, um, then it's impossible to have true justice. And I think that's part of human nature. I think if someone comes up to you and they just randomly stomp on your toe, then to hand you a dollar and say, here's restitution for stomping on your toe, it's never going to be right. You have to feel like, no, I want that guy, I want him to feel what it feels like for me to stomp on his toe. And I want to look him right in the eye when I do it. And and maybe that's not the same you know, reward that every single person would seek after. But there's somebody who is not going to be satisfied by giving them a dollar or $10 or $100. They want to look in that guy's eye, and they want to stomp on his toe, and they want to say, now you know what it's like to have your toe stomped. Now we're even. And I, I think that's lacking in the current method of justice that governments provide. Well, okay. So um, I uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, um, I I have over the years increasingly become aware of how important it is to be precise in speaking but for several reasons, and I've tried to do it. I'm not the world's greatest uh, writer, but I do try to speak precisely. I don't know if it's a law background or it's engineering. I try to think analytically and precisely and, cons- and, and consist- I try to use consistent terms and define what I mean. I mean I think uh, Hoppe has a good uh, essay in the introduction to – the uh, ethics of liberty where he he talks about how Rothbard's style is so clear. I mean if there's one thing you can't criticize Rothbard for not being clear. Um, he it's pretty if you disagree with him that's fine but at least you know what he means, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's important to get the ideas out there uh, and to, to communicate. And when when I find someone writing in an, an obfuscatory obfuscatory t- style, you know, like you can't really <laughs> I, I'm always suspe- suspicious that you know. I don't want to say that they're just not a good communicator because usually they're academics or professors who are supposed to be good at that. I, I suspect that they're covering something up or that the ideas are just so convoluted and confused that's the only way to present them. So yeah. I'm always suspicious 
at least be clear about what you mean. Um, and I've noticed that our opponents and people that are newbies and people that are confused, um, if you're not really clear, then you will get distracted at the tangents. There will be equivocation going on. There will be debates over semantics and the way terms are done. So I think it's really important to have crisp, precise, clear um, you know, definition of, of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. On the retaliation issue, uh, first of all, you might not know about this. Given what you just said, um, there's a book that you may really like. It's called Getting Even. <laughs> My, it, it's, it's kind of an academic scholarly book. It's about the, the benefit of retaliation in a society, personally, morally. Psych- I mean you know, we always hear, oh, if you're a victim of a crime – what good does it do if the if the offender is punished? It's just you're just participate. You're just as bad as him now because you want a sadistic pleasure at him being punished. That's a little <laughs> bit too cavalier. I think we all know that's a little bit too cavalier. Right. In a society of people that are trying to get along, you have certain people that are outliers, and when certain things happen, there is a vicious pleasure. I want to say vicious. There's a there's a certain satisfaction. Yeah. At knowing that the guy got his, yeah, because that's a general human, and I don't, I don't think we can just dismiss that out of some utopian idea that um, it should all be restitution based and have a, 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 a panel of experts appointed by the governor who will decide what dollar amount you're owed in restitution that you'll never get paid anyway because most criminals are low lives who don't have any resources in the first place. <laughs> so. <laughs> So first of all, I would suggest you take a look at this book called Getting Even. It's on Amazon. My friend Gil Guillory recommended this to me, and it's, it's an interesting book. Um, um, but my entire approach to this retaliation issue arose from just trying to carefully, incrementally, and consistently develop these libertarian principles that make sense with each other. And it really, in a way, stems from like Rothbard's insight that all rights are property rights. All rights are human rights. All human rights are property rights. It's always about the right to control a resource. And then if we talk about the question of justice, okay, which is tied in with this, we say we're in favor of justice. So I've stepped back and I said, well, what do we mean by that? The word justice, and I'm actually not sure if it relates to the, the, the name the Emperor Justinian. seems like it does. A lot of kids are named Justin now after Justinian. Um, but justice – means classically giving someone their due. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a vague statement. It's an abstract statement, but it has a certain resonance. What it means is we have a sense that people are do something in the normative scheme of society we, we want to live in, and whatever they're due, they should get. So the problem I have with the anti-retaliation perspective and the pro-restitution perspective is that they envision this system where you could have technocrats, typically judges or juries, uh, deciding on a tort, some kind of offense, and awarding you the amount of money that would compensate you for the offense. And the idea of restitution means to restore them to the position they were at before. But as you just pointed out, that's usually impossible. Right. And I don't think we should just shrug and ignore that and just proceed with our measurement analysis and try to come up with, well, we know that ju- true justice is impossible, but we're going to give the guy $10 million for having his foot chopped off in an accident or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we need to have a more fundamental analysis. And so my view is that all rights are property rights, which implies that all rights are invaded or infringed by 
border crossings. That is by people invading the space or using the resource that is owned by the property right. So right. that's an infringement. Right. Now, justice in my sense, in my idea, would be a world where no border crossings ever happen. So that's what real justice is. Justice means everyone has their due, which means they have their property rights respected. So there's no rape. There's no murder. There's no theft. Mm-hmm. That would be a world of justice. Okay. Now, but in our world, it probably will always be the case that there's at least some small criminal element, even if the state's eliminated, which right. is the biggest criminal. Right. Okay. So when the criminal commits an act of injustice, commits a crime, sorry, commits a trespass or an invasion or an aggression, mm-hmm. that is an act of injustice. And to my mind, injustice has been caused. It's there. It cannot be undone. It's a fact of the universe now. So we shouldn't pretend that we can undo it by a monetary payment. We can't. The question shifts now. Here's the state of the universe right now. There has been someone who has invaded someone else's borders. They've committed an act of transgression, an act of aggression. So the question simply becomes what is the response now? So that's the justice question in a secondary sort of way. Justice is giving someone their due, the right to respond the way they have the right to respond after injustice has happened in the first place Mm -hmm. with no pretense that we – can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Oh, cool. Okay. Sorry about that. No Uh, no problem. Skype just flaked on us for a moment. I don't know where we were. I was just talking about – what I was trying to say is I think justice means giving someone their due. Okay, so to me, it's a background principle that undergirds libertarian rights. We we believe in rights because rights tell us what people are due. So rights inform justice. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and so the pursuit of justice has to take into account what has actually happened in the world, what's transpired, and once once an act of aggression has occurred, you can't undo it. So the focus should simply shift to the victim. What is the victim entitled to do now? Mm-hmm. And in my view, in the theoretical framework at least, the, the, the right to retaliate has to be primary and key because it, 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 it defines the sort of parameters or the outer borders of what kind of restitution they could bargain for or what would happen. Um, now – after having said all this, I will say that my cha- my thinking has, has evolved a little bit over the last couple decades on this issue, and I do believe that in a private law society, what we now call restitution would probably be the dominant mode of, 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 of justice mm-hmm. for, for several reasons. Um, n- number one, I think that um, uh, uh, physical punishment of people… Like capital punishment or even incarceration right. is expensive. It doesn't lead to any retali- uh, to uh, any kind of a, uh, you know reparation of the victim. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, there's a possibility of error. So even though I'm in favor in general of the right to retaliate uh, or even to uh, to to uh, to vengeance, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I it's hard to imagine an institutionalized system of punishment corporations because it just doesn't produce anything useful 
and there's a chance of mistake. We yeah. have to admit this chance of mistake. We yeah. are fallible creatures, and in you know, in some cases, look, I don't know if you read about this thing in Texas here a couple of day a week ago. There was a some crazy ex husband who basically executed f- five children. Wow. Of, the family of his ex-wife because they wouldn't – the grandparents wouldn't tell him where his wife was or something like that. It was in Spring, Texas. It was just absolutely atro- – one, you know, one of these things you read about, it's like one of the worst things you've ever read. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, assuming the evidence is so clear, this is a guy who deserves to be executed, I think, and he probably will be, and I won't shed a tear. Yeah. When that happens, even though the state doing it, I don't think the state should be involved in that, etc. You could imagine cases where someone just deserves to be put away because they're a threat to society, or they just have lost their claim to any respect by anyone else. Mm-hmm. But in most situations, you want some, you want people to reintegrate with society. And um, again, also. I think if you have insurance, like an insurance type system, which provides for some kind of monitoring and uh, uh, and handling of these issues, they're not going to want to uh, hand the, their customer, uh, you know, an execution. They're going to want to give them some kind of some kind of compensation and maybe an apology from the malfeasor, and maybe he gets reintegrated in society. He learns his lesson. So I think restitution would tend to dominate for economic reasons. That's my point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be based upon the fundamental right of self-defense and the right to retaliate. So I do believe there's a right to retaliate and there's a right to vengeance. Uh, you know, Walter Block has written about this quite a bit, and I used to read his stuff, and I would think, you know, it doesn't. I, I don't know how to say this, but it doesn't taste right when I'm reading it. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense. And mm-hmm. he he has like this kind of odd formula where he goes, okay, so um, if you're if you're harmed by a hundred dollars, and the court can look at this situation and say, well, there's been a hundred dollars worth of harm, then you can demand the hundred dollars back from the from the aggressor, and then you have the right to charge him another hundred dollars for all the hassles of the court fees and having to go after him for the hundred dollars. And he has this formula, and I think it ends up at something like five to one. Um, punishment as to restitution. Uh, I could be wrong on that. Maybe three to one or four to one or something. But it... well, I think he's got an essay called uh, Two Teeth for a Tooth." Yeah, if, yeah, yeah. So I think it's two to one, if uh, I'm not mistaken. It it could be, and and actually that makes sense because that goes back to the biblical reference of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is actually, of course, much older than the Bible. It goes back to the Hammurabi's uh, mm-hmm. code, mm-hmm. which was an attempt to not to say if you get a tooth broken out, you can now go break the other person's tooth. It was a limitation to say you got one tooth broke out, you can't go break 15 out of the guy's mouth. You know, it's it's a limitation on on damages, not a... Uh, it's, propor- it's, 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 it's proportionality. It's yeah, a basic yeah. requirement of proportionality. It's, 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 that's the lex talionis, right? the, the yeah. law of retaliation. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, in that sense, I, I like Walter Block's uh, take on that, and yet it always kind of left this taste in my mouth that was like, yeah, but you, you can't have a closed decision-making process like that because each case is so individual. And that's where I think the difference between, 
You know, when we have an institutionalized organization that writes down laws and then the judge is required to go by exactly what that says and the attorney has to go by what that says and, and you and you lose a certain amount of the humanity in the process, whereas sure it's not as uh it's not as graceful if you leave each thing open and you talk about it more in a philosophical way but i think it's more human to look at it in the more in the in the less structured you know less um statute by statute type uh, uh law uh view well and i th- i think you're you're hitting on the issue here when you mention statute um and of course walter's not talking about a statute mm-hmm. nor is rothbard but there's a there's a there's an element that's similar there. Um, the, the 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 disagreement I would have with that sort of approach is, is well, there's twofold. Number one, I mean Walter and Rothbard and I are Austrian economists, right? I mean we believe in the subjective nature of value. We believe in dualism. That is, we believe that um, understanding empirical, causal, natural, scientific laws is one field of human understanding and analyzing human action purposes teleology is another mm-hmm. one's more quantifiable and one is more qualitative mm-hmm. um, and so when you start getting into this two teeth for a tooth rule i know he's not talking in monetary terms but it's a little bit too mechanistic and rigid and quantitative for us an essentially normative teleological endeavor mm-hmm. so i think it Brushes up against violating Austrian uh, basic uh, insights into the understanding of, of different types, different aspects of, of, of the world, mm-hmm. uh, which is human action and causal laws. They're they're different. Um, and the other problem I think is one I've I've, I've talked about is uh, armchair armchair libertarian theorizing or. <laughs> Um, and look, I, I'm not being critical here. Rothbard, for example, was writing. He was the I think Rothbard was the first modern, systematic, radical, principled, you know, uh, comprehensive libertarian theorist. I think he was basically the beginning of the movement. Yeah. Um, he had influences. There were proto-libertarians. There were fellow travelers. You know, there's Sam Konkin. There's Ayn Rand. There's Leonard Reed. Mm-hmm. There's Mises. But really, Rothbard was the beginning of the modern libertarian movement, but that was only 50 years ago or so. Um, and he was being – well, he was in a more socialistic-sounding world. He was being besieged by everyone else on the outside. He was a minority, and I don't just mean him. I'm using him as a proxy. I'm just saying libertarianism in general was – you know, we had these radical ideas. You should only have – uh, voluntary acts, uh, aggression is not permitted, the state is bad, blah, blah, blah. So you're going to get the natural questions from serious, sincere thinkers, uh, people asking questions, mm-hmm. trying to learn, and from our opponents. And they're just going to attack us mercilessly, and they're going to do things like, well, tell me how the justice system would work. They're going to start demanding demanding predictions about what a free society would look like. Yeah. And if you can't satisfy their demands for predictions – they're going to reject your ideas out of hand. They're going to say, well, Rothbard's in favor of a free society, but he can't tell us what the justice system will look like. He can just say it's going to be the result of market forces, and that's not satisfying to us, so we reject that. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think in response, some of the libertarians of the 60s and 70s and 80s 
they said, okay, if you want an answer, I'll give you an answer. Here's what I think would happen. Yeah. So they start predicting, and I think their predictions are reasonable. Um, but then the prediction gets confused with the theory. Right. Right. So right. they predict, well, we would have uh, retaliation. We would have punishment for debtor's prison. We would have whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, Here's how nuclear weapons would be treated, or here's how guns would be treated. So you start venturing into the predictive field. And then you get attacked because your predictions are wrong or because they're speculative, even though you were you were they demanded that you make the predictions in the first place. <laughs> so it's like you're 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 you know, you're caught between um, uh, a rock and a hard place. Um, so I think that's what happened. But I do think that. And I'm not a skeptic and I'm not calling for overdue humility because I think the libertarians or we shouldn't be skeptics. I think we should believe in reality is possible and reason is good. Um, and I think that um, uh, we are far better in almost every area than the traditional political perspectives. So we shouldn't be ashamed of making predictions and giving our opinions, but we do need to distinguish. And I do think we need to sometimes step back and say, listen, we have general libertarian principles. They mm. come from a certain source, a certain set of common values. We're against aggression. We're for peace. We're for cooperation. We're for society and civilization. We respect our own lives, and we respect other people's lives. Mm -hmm. And we want to find a workable system where we can all live together, and we think that if you are informed by free market economic principles and history and other ideas, you come to an understanding that we need to live and let live. And respect private property rights and have a free market. You come to that general understanding. But the particular rules that will dominate in a given culture or society, uh, it's hard to predict. Um, and so I gravitate towards the idea that we should focus on – if we're not being activists, if we talk about truth and substance and what's right and wrong, we need to focus on general – abstract principles, and if there's ever a dispute, we go back to the fundamental ones. So we right. build our way up that way, and we, we admit that in the society in the future, um, we don't know what the outcome of a given dispute between Mr. A and Mr. B will be. Right. That will have to be decided by their peers, by the court, by the jury, by some dispute process where they have the opportunity to look at a real-life situation. And to ask questions mm -hmm. like, well, A says this and B says this, and people don't know, hmm, who do I side with, A or B? And I say, hey, Mr. A, can you tell me, well, what were you doing when the brick fell on Mr. B's head? Yeah. Or who owned the – so you can ask more and more questions, and you can flesh out the context as you dynamically need to be able to do in the situation. And at the end, when you've collected all the evidence – that you've reasonably been able to do, and you can assess the character's testimony and decide who's telling the truth and all these things, then you apply these more abstract ideas, these more general principles to a concrete situation, and you come up with a legal ruling. And then that, if it's persuasive and seems to resonate with the community and makes sense and has the ring of justice about it, will be remembered mm -hmm. and repeated and relied upon and cited, and over time – a body of more concrete legal rules evolves and develops, and you can imagine it developing differently in different cultures, contexts, histories, and periods and regions. But they would all be basically ultimately based upon reason and the principles we can derive from reason, but you cannot legislate from your armchair on every situation, which is why, getting back to your original comment, I am myself reluctant to agree to the tooth teeth for a tooth rule. Right. 
I think that's a little bit too philosopher legislating from his armchair. <laughs> um, they don't need. I, they think they need to do that because mm-hmm. of the of, of the the way we were besieged in the seventies. Let's yeah. say. Yep. But nowadays we we have a growing movement. We have a large movement. We have a large history to draw upon. We can settle down and relax a little bit, and we can focus on abstract principles and just wait and see how the concrete implementations um, evolve in mm-hmm. different uh, cultures or contexts. I, I think a little bit of it is confidence too. You know, I have such a level of confidence in these uh, principles that we adhere to. That, uh, that in the long run, I don't have to know exactly what the punishment's going to be for, you know, a common argument is what's the punishment for stealing a, a paperclip or what's the punishment for, you know, how many libertarians can dance on the head of a pin type of nonsense. I don't necessarily have to sit down and spend a lot of time arguing on the, on the, the extreme details of something like that. If I have a lot of confidence in the process, Yes. Then yes. I say, you know, that's going to work out. And yes. I and I don't feel the need to go into every aspect of how roads are going to be built, you know, in order to say I because I don't even know if there's going to be roads. I, you know, what right. what would right. technology be if we take about take out the silliness of IP? W- w- you know, how long would it take us before we all have flying personal <laughs> flying vehicles anyway? I don't know. So, exactly. you know, uh it, it takes out so much of the burden of trying to decide how many libertarians can dance on the head of a pen if you just have a wider confidence in the in the philosophy and don't even try to get caught up in these silly uh, endless arguments about the uh, details that can go into unbelievable you know uh what's it called lifeboat scenarios that just yes. have no end yes and i think that also um um well, first you'll notice that the people that demand your answer on the LiPo scenarios or on predicting what a future world is going to look like, well, it's not like they have their own answer. That, that <laughs> right, makes sense. Right. So I, I don't know where they get off demanding that we answer this. Mm. Uh, I don't know if socialism has a better answer to the lifeboat scenario either. I mean <laughs> – it's it's a lifeboat scenario. It's by definition a situation where there's tragedy imminent and it's going to happen, and we can't live together in peace and harmony, and it's not good. <laughs> but luckily, we seem to have a world where we can live in peace and harmony. And if we, if, if most of us respect certain rules, we're all you know, we're all so much better off. Yeah. And so there's a good reason, um, a good reason to do it. Well, Stefan, I can't, you know, honestly steal any more time from you now. I've taken like an hour and a half of your time already. And uh, I just talked to Randy England yesterday, who is a uh, defense attorney. And at the end of talking to him for a little over an hour, I thought, you know, I just swallowed like six, eight, nine hundred dollars worth of this guy's time and <laughs> didn't give him a nickel for it. And now here I am speaking with another attorney who would probably charge me something similar to that if I was to sit down and say, "Hey, I need to hire you to work out this, uh, you know, this patent agreement that I'm having with this with this company over here," and and so I just swallowed an hour of time of an attorney that should have cost me close to a thousand dollars, and I'm sitting here going, "Ah, that was nice. I got that for free." 
Well, uh, as we as we know, we're we're voluntarists and we're we're libertarians and we're subjectivists in in that sense, and so value is subjective, and uh, it, there's always a reciprocal aspect. So, I've stolen some of your time too, which is <laughs> which is good. But you don't want to get make the IP mistake of talking about stealing time because you're going to support <laughs> you're going to support these IP guys. So be careful with that one. Uh, that's that true. metaphor. Yeah, but that's we true. have to avoid metaphors at all costs because metaphors are like the arrows of time. That, <laughs> Hit you in the heart. Wait a second. I just, <laughs> I just violated my own prescription. Anyway, no, I enjoyed it, and I love talking to you, and I'd, I'd be happy to do it again. And uh, keep keep pressing on, man. Yeah, maybe you we'll too. meet at one of these. Uh, I'm sure I'll be at New Hampshire one of these days, one of these uh, libertarian events. Maybe next year or the year after that. So uh, I, I hope took so. this. I took this year off from traveling, except for one or two things, but uh, uh, for, for libertarian events, but. In the upcoming years, it will be easier. My son is getting older, you know, so uh, mm, yeah. Uh, we'll see. So I'm going to run into you one of these days at Las Vegas or New Hampshire or whatever, and or San like, Diego. I really want to encourage people too. As my, I'll take this opportunity as much as possible. I want to encourage people in Texas and Louisiana and Georgia and Mississippi and California and Oregon and Washington and you know Montana. And, that you don't have to go to New Hampshire, or you don't have to go to Las Vegas or San Diego to these big things. You know, more and more, we should start doing these things regionally, and you'd be surprised how many people would show up. You know, I, I use the example of uh, uh, northern um, Louisiana is central to like a dozen major figures in the movement that I can think of off the top oh, of yeah. my head. I, I think I heard your... I th- I heard your interview the other day with someone talking about exactly that, like doing a pork fest, yeah, yeah, type thing in another state. Yeah. Um, well, about a year ago, um, maybe a year and a half ago, Stephen Molyneux and Jeff Tucker came down, and we and I I participated in this thing called Liberty in the Pines, which was in Nacogdoches, Texas, which mm. is about an hour and a half, two hours north of Te- Houston, at Stephen F. Austin University. It was a great little event. Walter did it. Walter Block did it remotely. Uh, it was a great event, and it made me think. Uh, and now in Houston, we have Liberty on the Rock, so we have this bi- semi-weekly meeting where, well, thirty, forty, fifty people show up. Yeah. And and um, uh, I think I I actually I, we thought about putting a conference together here in Houston called uh, something like uh, Life and Liberty, like trying to focus on the intersection of how you can integrate liberty principles and ideas into your life on mm. a practical basis. Yeah. And anyway, we had the conference planned, um, um, and it still may happen. We, we delayed it for a while, but our thinking was Houston, for example, is an untapped market, and it's fairly cent- – it's close to a big airport. It's in the south. It's close to Dallas and Austin and Louisiana and even you know other parts of the of the south. So I agree with you. There are, there are, there are other regional centers that can start blossoming and uh, taking advantage of, of the growing – movement and the the need for people to get together physically on occasion yeah yeah anybody who's listening who you know who thinks hey i have a little bit of an organizing tendency jump on that and organize something locally and you know i'm sure a lot of us would jump on it and give it any advertising that we could or you know if we're local to it you know we'll try to get there and and be a part of it What, what city were you thinking about in louisiana uh, I'm, I'm just pretty much anywhere. We spend the, the year in our RV moving around. So, you know, we spend the winter down in Southern Alabama and in that area. So mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. we're pretty flexible. We can, we can pretty much hit anywhere. 
Yeah, Florida <laughs> might Florida might not be a bad place here, but uh, yeah, Lafayette. I mean, uh, Shreveport, Shreveport, maybe something like that. Have a True Blood sort of yeah, yeah. vampire themed uh, <laughs> fest. That could be fun. That could work. Yeah. Well, Stefan, thanks again for uh, coming on the show with me and uh, let me take your time. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. And we'll talk later. Let's uh, let's give a shout out to your website. It's um, really easy. You just have to get the spelling right. It's is it stephenkinsella.com, right? That's it. Okay, and that's s t e p h a n k i n s e l l a dot com, and I'll put a link in today's show notes. And uh, also that book you mentioned, um, you can get that at, at uh, Amazon, which is Getting, Getting Even. Getting Even. Yeah, and I then, forgot the author. But and we should mention it. a couple of your books, too, because like one of yours that I've, that I've pushed pretty heavily uh, against intellectual uh, property, is that the, was that the name of it? That's the name, and I've got a um, – I'm working on a, an edited selection of my essays called Law and a Libertarian World, which hopefully will be coming out later this year. And um, I think I'll self-publish, to be honest, so I can just avoid all the copyright crap that's annoying me <laughs> with publishers. Um, and I'm, I, I hope to do an updated version of the IP book, and I'm going to call it Copy This Book. Um, but that's oh, cool. A, that's about a year-and-a-half project, let's say. So that's what I have coming up. I actually have two copies of Against Intellectual Property in the shelf behind my head right now that we have right in our RV. We, we drive around. <laughs> my bookshelf uh, is over the driving area, and I actually have two copies in there specifically because it's just a neat little handy book that's that's real. Uh, it's real concise. It's it doesn't. There's not a lot of fluff, and you can hand it to somebody that can read it in one evening. And I like to have it handy so that I can just step into the motorhome, grab it, and say, "Here, this is for you. Just read it." Do you find you find most people still read uh, on paper in print, or what are you finding? Well, I'm around a lot of old people <laughs> in, in, in RV parks, you know, and campgrounds and so forth. I, I encounter a lot of people that are retired, and and uh, they they actually enjoy sitting down in the sun with a good book. And interesting. So. Well, well, if you ever run into another Kinsella, it may be my parents who do some camping. So, oh, really? Uh, yeah, Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana area. So they have an RV and they 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 do camping. So if you ever see another Kinsella, that it's probably it's Probably my dad. That's actually very, uh, very likely. We we are in that area a lot. So, yeah. Folks, thanks for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. And thanks again to Stefan Kinsella. Thanks, Ben.